Hey, it's Krista. Quick update before we dive in. It's been a year since I published my last podcast episode, and in that time, I quit my job and hiked the 2,653-mile Pacific Crest Trail. I returned home in September of 2022 and spent a few months figuring out what to do next. I'm now living in a new city with my partner, working remotely, and relaunching this podcast, which is now called Open Jam. The episode you're about to hear is my conversation with Justin Peters, the host of the Struggle is Real podcast, where this episode originally aired in December of 2022. We talked just a month after I got back from my trip. I hope you enjoy the conversation as we dive into hiking, life, sabbaticals, and how money factors into all of it. I feel like this is like a year overdue. For real, yeah, I'm so excited to be here. I feel like we've been talking offline for over a year, so I'm excited to, really excited to be here. Yeah, of of course, we have a really close personal relationship, which sometimes makes these conversations easier for me. Sometimes they make them harder for me because I have so many potential threads. I know so much about you and I know different things that we could potentially talk about. I don't know like your narrow online focused brands. I know the things that make Krista who she is outside of that. But I feel like it's really hard for me to ignore the hike that you just went on. So you just got done with this amazing career break. I mean, you're coming off this, (laughs) what felt like a decade long hike, but I guess it was like five and a half months or so. So let's start there. Let's talk about the hike that you just completed. You're 30 days off from that now. So some of this might be really fresh on your mind. Other things I'm guessing are probably going to sink in over time, especially some of the lessons learned. It's been interesting listening to you over the last couple of weeks and different things are popping up and boiling up for you. So first and foremost, what is a long distance through hike? And then can you specifically map out the Pacific Crest Trail for me? Yes. So a long distance through hike is essentially a continuous hike, think starting from point A to point B, that is at least 500 miles. And there's three major through hikes in the U.S. There's one on the East Coast, which is the Appalachian Trail. There's one kind of right in the center of the country, Continental Divide Trail. And then you've got one on the West Coast. That one is the Pacific Crest Trail. And it starts on the Mexico border and it ends on the Canadian border. So if you're picturing this, you're pretty much walking all of California, all of Oregon, and all of Washington. 2,653 miles of hiking straight off the West Coast, pretty much. That's so insane. Are you on the coastline? Are you a little bit more inland? Yeah, that's a good question. So it's actually more inland. A lot of folks think it's walking the coast because you've got the Pacific Coast Highway, Mm -hmm. but it it stays toward the central and eastern sides of all of those states. So for me, I had never really been to the West Coast outside of one very small work trip, which was in a California city. So I got to see a completely different side of that state and really that side of the country because I was in pretty rural California, Oregon, and Washington for the entire trail. And we got to go through some pretty wild mountain ranges as well. So it was, it was awesome. It was a lot. It took us five months and six days to complete it. When did you leave and when did you finish? We left, started March 30th, and then we finished September 2nd. And I remember you telling me there's like a pretty specific window of when you have to leave if you want to complete this because of weather, I think, for the most part. And there's like this Goldilocks of can't be too cold, it can't be too hot in certain areas, or you have to wait for snow to melt for some pieces of it. How does that all work out? Yeah, so there's a weather window sweet spot 
we did what's called Nobo or northbound. So we start on the Mexico border and we end in Canada. With that sort of direction, you want to do the desert in the spring so that you're not there when it's too hot because you want to essentially get out of the desert by the time summer hits. Then you've got this middle section where you're in the highest mountain range of the whole trail, the Sierra Nevadas, which has a really interesting weather pattern. So they get a lot of snow and you're climbing really big mountains. Like this is where Mount Whitney sits. So you've got to make sure you're there not too early because then it's too cold, too snowy, but not too late because the snow will start to melt and it can lead to really high rivers. So the water crossings can be dangerous or it can lead to slushy snow melt so you can slip and fall. So Sierras can be pretty dangerous from a snow and melt standpoint. And then we didn't realize this at the time, but as you get further north, you need to kind of hightail it to the border because then you're dealing with a wildfire threat. So as the summer goes on, California, Oregon, and Washington are really prone to wildfires. So you're trying to get out of there before, honestly, before the trail burns down, which is sad that it's becoming a lot more of a reality. A lot of folks this year ended up having to skip around parts of the trail because of wildfires in the area. And we got so lucky. We literally finished the day that they shut the last 30 miles of trail down on the border. Yeah, you were literally like running from the fire, which is absolutely insane to me. I don't remember you mentioning wildfires at all whenever you were telling me all about this this hike. I think it was fairly unpredictable for for you guys in general, but I guess something you'll consider next time. <laughs> I mean, I'm an East Coast girl. I didn't, I didn't know to even think about wildfires. Yeah. We hear about it when it's big enough to make national news. I didn't realize that this was honestly like a yearly threat for folks, kind of like, you know, hurricanes down in Florida. It's just something that happens. It's such a bummer. So logistically, how does it work? And I'm guessing, actually, are you some like monster athlete that you're just like, okay, I've done marathons now. I I need to do 2,653 miles instead. You know, I wouldn't use the term monster athlete. (laughs) You know, I grew up playing soccer, competitive soccer. I played in college. I've always been a very active person. I did feel like after coming out of college where I had a really prescriptive, this is what I'm going toward. You know, we're going to win the the title. We're going to be top of the conference. Graduating and trying to figure out what my athletic path looked like, it was a bit of a bummer, honestly. Okay, now I just have to go to the gym and like make my own workouts and like what am I working toward? So I definitely hit a slump with that, trying to figure out what my activities looked like. So when I heard about this, I was like, okay, you know, I never grew up being like a crazy intense hiker. I was like, this is something I can get behind from an athletic standpoint. I want to push myself. I want to figure this out. And I mean, this just sounded absurd. So of course, yes, I'm going to try it too. <laughs> yeah, I relate to that so much as a former college athlete myself as well. And just being for, I don't know, 15 plus years in the mindset of playing in some kind of competitive athletic arena, of course, like the competitiveness against somebody else is one thing, but in the majority of the battle is just being competitive with your own self and like pushing your own boundaries, especially in a physical capacity, which is probably why my ultra marathon interested me too, because I felt kind of flat in that area of my life up until then, where I was like, you know what, I'm looking for something. I I can do the routine maintenance, going for runs and working out and doing all of that stuff. But I felt like something was missing 
in my life and I hadn't really found it over the last couple of years since soccer. So I, I totally get what you're saying with the hike. It was definitely eye-opening for me to realize that without a sport kind of driving my athletic interest, I mean, my workouts fell flat. I felt like I wasn't achieving my peak physical fitness that I was used to. You know that feeling when like, you know, you're in shape and you just like, uh-huh. your energy's good. You feel really agile. I hadn't had that feeling in a really long time. And I realized that like the competitive aspect was what got me there. It's not necessarily that I like loved working out because I mean, I haven't done anything in a month and I'm totally enjoying just laying around. (laughs) But having that sort of goal to work toward got me in a really good physical shape that like I missed that feeling. So it's really important for me to have the mental push to get me there. Let's talk specific about how it actually like works because you were on the trail for five and a half, six months almost. You are in remote rural areas, like you mentioned, for days at a time, maybe weeks at a time. I don't know what the longest stretch was. So what do you carry with you? And how often do you like restock? Is that a thing? Do you like go into towns and restock and like get things that you need for the future couple of days or weeks? Exactly. I love that you you use that word too, because we call it resupplying. It's the same exact concept. If you were going to break this down, like someone who has never backpacked before, because that's the activity. Essentially, you need what's called the big three. You need a bag to carry all your stuff in. You need a tent that's going to last through the elements. So some things like rain, wind, another thing I did not anticipate being an issue. Rain, wind, heat, cold. And then you need a sleep system that's going to keep you warm. So that really just entails a warm sleeping bag, a sleeping pad, and then of course your clothes. Those are the gear items. And then the other like huge part of backpacking, of course, is food and water. So you, you end up breaking it down into like a couple day or a week long stretch because along a trail like this, you're going to cross roads or towns or places where you're going to have access to, to groceries. And that could be a gas station or it could be a Whole Foods. It really just depends on the part of the country that you're in. And we had experiences with both. So what you end up doing is logistically you'll map out how many miles is it between where I am now and my next town. And the next town is where you're going to do those activities like restock or resupply. So you're constantly prepping for, we call them food carries. So it's just a certain number of days that you know you'll be on the trail without access to normal amenities. And then you get to that town, that next town by a certain date so that you can then restock and carry enough food for the next town. Essentially for folks who are like, oh my gosh, five months is insane. That's a long time for sure. But when you break it down, it's pretty much like backpacking four to seven days at a time. And you just have to repeat it for about five months. So I wasn't carrying five months worth of food. I was usually carrying between three and seven days, depending on the trail. Do you know the weight of your bag? Oh my goodness. That's funny you asked. (laughs) To the pound? Yeah. So we started the trail and I think I was around 44, 45 pounds. Okay. Which I'd never done this before. I had no concept of what was too heavy. That's very heavy. (laughs) So... There are some like percentages you can find online. You don't want a bag that's more than 15 to 20% of your body weight. We were totally winging it. We were like, yeah, you know, I need this coffee maker. Of course I'm going to bring it. Or I want three hoodies. Yeah, I'll just bring it. Like I'll carry it. (laughs) That was just a mindset going in. And I quickly realized that your pack weight directly correlates to how much fun you have on a trail like this. (laughs) It's something that I never thought to really think about, but... 
very quickly on, you realize that there's items that you bring that you'll never touch. So why the heck am I carrying them? So we're sending stuff home. We're realizing that we might not need something for this section of the trip. So let me go ahead and send that forward until I need it. And just in general, by the end of the trip, I think my bag was around 28 pounds, maybe. Wow. And it really fluctuates depending on food and water because water is the heaviest thing you'll carry. So depending on the part of the trail, like in the desert, there's a lot less water sources. Something I forgot to mention, too, is you bring a water filter so that you're not carrying gallons of water from the grocery store. You're using rivers and streams to filter out your water. But in some sections of the trail, you might have a stretch of 20 to 30 miles without a reliable water source. And you have to carry about a liter for every five miles of hiking. So you're looking at carrying maybe four to five liters, and it's two pounds a liter. So, wow. I mean, that's, that's an extra 10 to 15 pounds just in water. That sounds exhausting. But I'm guessing you got to be pretty strong now. <laughs> like you've been carrying at least 25 pounds on your back for six months straight now. Maybe not monster athlete to start with, but I would call you a monster athlete <laughs> after finishing this thing. You know what's funny? I would say I got really, really good at walking with a backpack on. <laughs> if that was the definition of monster athlete, absolutely. <laughs> I got home. I tried to jog for like five minutes and my body just said, absolutely not. My legs don't move in that speed. <laughs> exactly. The speed wasn't right. My joints were like, I haven't moved laterally in five months. Why are you trying to make me walk sideways? I tried to like do a couple push-ups, and my arm said, absolutely not. Like imagine T-Rex right? I've got these like giant legs now and my arms have like shriveled away. So it's really funny. That's something I wasn't expecting. Like the activities that you do, definitely like your body will adjust. You'll get really good at that thing. I'm actually in a, I'm calling it a rebuilding phase right now. Athletic rebuilding, just trying to figure out what I need to be able to do now that I'm not walking 25 miles a day, essentially. Once again, that resonates true for me as well. It was like when I was ultramarathon training, it's the only thing I could really put any energy into. And I was very weak in a lot of other areas of my body, but running 20 miles nonstop was something I was great at. So (laughs) sweet. But then I realized I was like, holy cow, now I'm like 140 pounds and can barely lift anything. So I need to like rebuild a little bit. (laughs) Definitely resonate with that. That's a big lesson. I feel like I'm taking away from this. If you know what you really want to be good at, then you can absolutely do that thing and, and get really good at it. But it doesn't always correlate to like other areas of your life or physical fitness. Let's continue on that thread then. Some other lessons learned, maybe more reflective than prescriptive, like you were just mentioning. You're once again great at walking with a backpack on now. Uh, Mm -hmm. But what about other things you took away from the hike? It was really interesting because you and I had a touch point maybe every month or so. I feel like we were connecting whenever you're in town. You were calling me. You were kind of keeping me up to date. And we were talking business a little bit as well. But your focus and kind of what you were thinking about at that time kind of changed gradually. So can you expand on that a little bit more and kind of like what you took away from the hike overall? Yeah, absolutely. So if you guys can imagine a graph, right, an arc, I'd say that both physically and mentally, my energy slash excitement slash achievement followed the same kind of arc. So I started and I didn't know anything, right? I had backpacked twice before deciding to hike for five months. So I was a true 
true rookie. I was kind of learning everything. So my first, I'd say two, two and a half months looked like a pretty gradual uphill climb in terms of getting more comfortable with the trail, starting to get confident in that, oh, I know what I'm doing. I know how I pack my bag, right? I learned all the tips and tricks that we tend to pick up that just make things easier. So I felt like physically I was getting stronger and my confidence was really starting to grow. While at the same time, I still had this very fresh feeling that, you know, I just quit my job. I'm doing this new adventure. Everything's so fresh and exciting. And that continued upward for about two and a half to three months. And at the same time, we got to go through the most beautiful part of the trail in that time. So I felt like I was really on a high. And then what I noticed was around the halfway mark, halfway in terms of time, not in terms of miles. So we can talk about that also. I reached this point where I felt good. I had proved to myself that I could do this and I knew I could finish the trail. What I started to struggle with at that point was the mental aspect of, do I want to do this? I'm doing the same thing day after day. I still have over half of the miles to walk because the way this trail works is you kind of ramp up and time-wise you're halfway through, but you still have over half the miles to do because you tend to do the second half a lot quicker than the first half. So I was at my peak and then what I noticed was a mental and even physical slump started to happen in the northern part of California where I really just started to question, is this what I want to be doing? At this point, some of the physical things start to catch up with you. Like my feet were really swollen. I started to get really sore. Things that were just overuse type injuries, not something I could have really prepared for. So in terms of that graph that we're imagining, I started to slip a little bit. So I'd say month three and a half to four for me was just kind of this area of feeling like the hike had now become my job. And I was just stuck in this pattern of every day I'm doing the same thing. I'm bored. I'm tired. I'm frustrated. I'm really, really hungry. And I felt like I was really being pushed to my mental and physical peak. All the things I think about in my own career, <laughs> especially the hunger thing. It's <laughs> exactly right. You're on this meeting and you're like, oh my God, I just want to eat lunch. But yeah, so I'm, I'm kind of in a divot and I was super fortunate to have a supportive group around me. I actually started the trail with four people and ended up hiking most of it with a total group size of five. And that was, that was fantastic. I mean, we had our own challenges in terms of you're with five people, the same five people every single day. Of course, there's going to be tension and people get sick of each other and all of that. But overall, we had a really strong community of stubborn athletes that were like, we are going to finish this. So then in terms of that trajectory, I felt like entering month five, when you, you know, you're getting close, just like with anything, right? Graduating, whatever it is, you know, you're close enough to where you start to get some of that motivation back to where I, I just need to finish. And when I reflect on that kind of trajectory of doing really well, slumping a little bit, and then having that sort of final push, it really reminded me of like a couple kind of mental aha moments that I wanted to get into. And one of them was this fact of everything is temporary. I know I think one of the first things I, I said to you was trying to explain this and I'm still working on making it sound how I feel it. But essentially, I kept being put in these situations where there was always like some element of where I was or what I was doing that was uncomfortable. Whether it was, I'm cold, I'm hot, I'm hungry, I'm tired. There's always something, right, that was affecting me in the moment. And at the beginning of the trip, I started to notice that I would really fixate on that. 
there's kind of a joke that like through hikers are never happy. We're always complaining about some element of something that's not going right. And I would really fixate on that. Oh, if only the sun would come out, then everything would be great. And then the sun comes out and then I'm too hot, right? And I just started to get used to the fact that no matter what element or situation I'm in, that situation will eventually change. And when I realized that things were going to constantly move and morph, I started to get a lot better at just kind of being where I was mm. and appreciating the fact that like, yeah, it's, it's cold right now. It's 6 a.m. But in two hours, I know the sun's going to come out. We're going to hit a water source. We're going to take a break. We're going to laugh about the ridiculous thing that happened last night. Everything's going to be fine. And I just really got comfortable with this mindset. And I think it let me kind of settle into where I was. And it really helped me in that mental dip that I was explaining where I just felt like I'm so over this. But now, you know, I'm a month out from the trail and I'm like, I'm missing it. There yeah. are so many things about it that I miss and I'm trying to, to hold on to. So that was one of my biggest takeaways, honestly. Mm. Is there a ordinary moment that pops up pretty frequently now that you've been a month off the trail that you're like, I, I missed this aspect of, of the hike? I'd say the dinner circle at the end of the night. So for folks listening, I feel like there is a very different experience when you purposely try to do something like this alone and you stick to the solo journey. And that's just not the experience that I had. So a lot of my memories and kind of the high points are related to going through something like this with such a strong core group of people that I felt like I got a lot closer to. So pretty much every night I camped in a group of at least four people. Sometimes it was five, sometimes it was 12, depending on the section of the trail. And we would always form the dinner circle at the end of the night. And there would always be just something that happened during the day, whether it was someone lost their shoe, someone fell into the water, someone had a really unfortunate bathroom experience. <laughs> that was just, that, that's a pretty big topic on a hike like this. And it always just made me remember that like at the end of the day, we were going to sit down and just laugh about something. And I flash back to just those random moments all the time. Mm. So let's pick up your, your thread that we were just on with everything as temporary as well. Does that have application, I guess, in your life moving forward? I can definitely see it from the sense of maybe not everything is temporary, but some uncontrollables are temporary. There are some things that you just have to endure through. And then there are things in your control that can help with the current situation as well. So I don't know, wanted to press you on that a little bit more to, to elaborate how you might be taking that learning lesson from the, the hike and maybe applying it into to life. Maybe if you already have an application that you've applied it to at some point in time over the last month. I think for me, that concept of everything is temporary really goes back to being settled with who I am, regardless of my environment. And I want to relate this back to actually how I felt when I was going through school, going through college, really having this sort of overachiever mindset that I had to check all the boxes. And what I mean by that is I was a kind of a stereotypical straight A student, always striving for the best grades. You know, I wanted to be the person that stood out. I was a really high achiever in soccer, wanted to be the captain, wanted to get all the, the awards, wanted to do all of these things because I felt like if I could just check off these boxes and, and do what I was told, right, that everything would work out. What I realized was, yeah, I did all of that. I, I got the awards. 
you know, I went to school. I kept that same sort of mindset throughout college as well. And when I graduated, I got the job, right? I started making money. And then I just kind of realized that there's no more, there's no more path, right? There's no more check boxes once I hit that moment. And I felt really lost. And I felt like I was on this trajectory of I've constantly got to be striving to arrive to some point where finally, once I hit that point, that thing in the future, right, then I'll be happy. Or then I will blank, insert all of the things that, that we think we need, right? Then I'll have enough money. I'll have the lifestyle that I want or have the house that I want. And I feel like that constant striving and arrival mindset was really preventing me from seeing some things that I was doing in my day-to-day life that gave me a lot more insight into what actually made me happy, what opportunities maybe I was missing. When I think back to the hike, that moment of everything's temporary and just being okay with that gave me more presence to see what I am actually doing. In a lot of ways, that was physical for me. It was just don't get trapped in like your physical elements, too hot, too cold, et cetera. But I'm trying to apply that to my mental state. And when I think about things like, okay, I have to do this, this, and this, and then someday in the future, I'll be happy. Well, you know what? Think about the fact that everything's temporary. What I'm doing right now, it doesn't have to always be leading me toward this just checkbox where sometime in the future, I'll be happy. I can think about the fact that I can just enjoy the moment, know that it will change and morph, and I don't have to fixate on that thing that I thought was going to propel me to some next step. Does that make sense? That makes a lot of sense to me. And I'm guessing that probably makes a lot of sense to many young adults. We go through our whole lives between 22 to 24-ish in a very prescriptive manner where mm-hmm. every year we're graduating into the, the next class. You know, you go from first to second grade, you go from middle school to high school, you go to high school to college. There are these major milestones at the end of some of these accomplishments as well. There is a predictable and societal expectation for what is next in that journey. Once again, from the high school to college, that's the the most obvious one is when you finish high school, you go to college and college is meant for you to figure out what you want to do for your career. Therefore, after college, you are now starting said career. And you're right, at two or three years into this career, all of a sudden, you look up and you're like, well, what is the next milestone? Like, where am I going next? And sometimes you might focus in on the career itself. It's okay. I was told I need to start climbing the career ladder. So I'm going for the senior associate role and then I'm going to become the manager. And then I want to be the director and all of that. Or maybe you turn to your relationships and it's time to get married. And then I buy the house and then I have the kids. And it can be hard because at up until that point, I hope that you made some of these decisions on your own, but so many, so much of your decision-making process was also because of societal expectations or parental advice or what you just looked around and saw other people doing. And I think this career break that you took gave you the opportunity to kind of step away from all of that. How many 20-somethings do you know took half a year off of work to go do a 2,600-mile hike? Very little. That's very disruptive in your whole line of thinking in general of what am I doing with my life right now? Well, right now I'm going on this hike and then I'll figure out what I want to do after that. Exactly. I think that you just summarized for me what was a really hard decision to make because I was very much in that cycle of like, okay, I've got to do this. I've got to be the individual contributor for two years and then I'll apply to the management job and then I'll 
become a, you know, whatever it is, maybe one day I'll be a VP. And I was just kind of on this trajectory. And when I got presented with the opportunity to do this sort of hike, I'll be honest with you, my first reaction was like, I can't do that. I don't blame you because that's, I think that's how I would approach it too. Like, whoa, six months of like delaying or taking progression in the opposite direction on something like this. Like I got things moving right now. I can't take off six months of my life. Exactly. I was like, you know, I'll lose my momentum at work. I I won't have an income for six months. I mean, that really, I mean, that was probably the biggest fear for me. It was like, Mm -hmm. holy shit, what am I going to do? And and it wasn't that I didn't even have the means because I was very fortunate. You know, I had been saving for a long time. I'd always been a good saver, not necessarily knowing what to do with my money. That's a whole other conversation that I've learned about. But just the fact that I knew I could swing it but I didn't have that plan to come back to. And honestly, I'm still figuring that out. You know that about me right now, kind of in this exploration phase. But what I realized is when I finally made the decision to do the hike, I did have a sort of mindset change where historically it was kind of like my lifestyle supports my achievement. And growing up, that was school and soccer. And once I graduated college, it was work. So my lifestyle allows me to work really hard and excel in that sphere. When I started planning for the hike, all of a sudden I had this thing happening outside of work, completely unrelated to work, right? That I was now focusing on, thinking about how I was going to do it. I had this kind of more creative space to really explore what life felt like outside of this job. And when that switched for me, now this job was allowing me to pursue this other thing that I was interested in. And when I finally went on the trail, this took me a while to realize as well, but it, it was about a month, a month and a half of mindset where I was still thinking about work every single day. I wasn't even, I wasn't working anymore. I wasn't supporting those clients. I didn't wake up and have the calendar to-do list, but my mind was still back in that work world. And it took me about a month to finally get out of that space where I felt like I could be really present in this new world that I was exploring. And just that fact alone, like realizing, kind of going back to that idea of fixating and everything's temporary, just realizing how fixated I still was on this certain idea of how I had to perform in work and what was important in work really made me realize that I needed to be more invested in my lifestyle and not just invested in my work. And that was a a huge moment for me, honestly. Interesting. You made it sound like the decision was, yes, you put some consideration into it, but at the same time, like it was like a gung-ho thing. I am guessing there was a lot more back and forth in your mind than just that. I think the finance piece to it is easy for someone like you and I to solve. Like once we have a number and we can like map out a plan in place for it, cool, I can financially afford to do this. But I mean, the fact that you've made prudent decisions all the way up until this point in time to allow yourself to take six months off of generating the income and honestly, probably losing money too, because I'm (laughs) guessing you spent some money and you probably didn't make anything while you're on the trail unless there was some kind of bartering thing that I don't really (laughs) know a whole lot about. No, I I lost money. (laughs) (laughs) But how'd you get over the life pause or that slowing your career progression, all of those thoughts? How did you get over... The fact that you're just going to like miss out on life for six months, wherever you were at that point in time in your life. I think that there were a couple things happening for me in that moment, just to give you guys some more of a background. Like I come from a family that pretty much what we talked about slash what we talk about is work. 
And I never really realized that until I was around other families and just people who invested in hobbies outside of their careers. So I think I felt programmed from a young age to make my identity what I'm doing, what I'm pursuing. And I, I started to recognize that in myself and just like some of the ways that I was really, really getting sucked into my job to where I felt like it was actually becoming my identity in some ways. I was not able to unplug at night. I was noticing that if I had a client say something that wasn't an A plus review, then it was like starting to affect me emotionally. Mm. And I realized that and I was like, okay, this isn't healthy, right? I know it's not healthy. But I know that at the same time, I can't really help it right now. That's just like how I feel about work. And I started to, to think about that. I thought about the fact that I had been on this trajectory since I could remember where I was just checking off all the boxes and I wasn't really making decisions that felt like they were truly for me. I felt like they were just what I was supposed to be doing. And I was kind of struggling with all of this. And then when I realized that like, this hike was something that people were doing. I started to take the plunge. You know, we talk about the personal finance rabbit hole. Well, there is a through hiker rabbit hole that you can <laughs> take a plunge into. And you just learn about all of these people who are living life differently. They're working so that they can do things like this. And that sort of mentality made me think, is this something that I could really benefit from and something that I could get excited about outside of work and truly take the time to explore? my interests without having this nine to five really sucking a lot of energy from me. So I started to notice in my home life that I had all these goals and dreams outside of work and outside of the nine to five, but there's just a very real fact that like we're all humans. We only have a certain amount of energy every day. And when you have to dedicate it to something like work full time, you don't get the mental space to really explore other avenues. So if you can imagine, there was this kind of balance happening where on one shoulder, I've got someone telling me, you need to work, you need to put the time in, you need to make the money, kind of what I had heard my whole life. And then on the other shoulder, it was like, well, if you can do this now and really start to figure out who you are, what you like, what excites you, first of all, in the long run, that'll probably pay off for you in terms of work. And secondly, take the time now so that you don't regret it later. And that's just something that I was like, okay, it's going to probably hurt, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to try it. And I'm honestly just so glad I did. Yeah, I'm glad you did too. I think it is very admirable that you did it. It is a hard thing and a courageous thing to actually step up and follow through with like these big grandiose ideas that so many of us have. And there have been things that I followed through with. There have been things that I've talked about that I've never fallen through with. I do think that it's worth taking some time off at mm -hmm. some point in your life and exploring one of these monster, I keep using the word monster this, this <laughs> episode, but it, it seems to really work out. We might have to plug it into the title, but one of these monster goals that you have yeah. and, you know, actually dedicating the time and energy. I mean, in my sabbatical, part of that was actually starting this podcast and, you know, getting that launched and having that dedication and commitment to it as like, this is what I'm doing at this time in my life right now. Same with you with the hike piece to it as well. But what are some, in your own opinion, what are some of your thoughts on when it might be the right time to take a career break? Because I, many 20-somethings, it's actually, I think, a great time potentially to take it. But at the same time, it might not be a really great time to take it. You might be at the height in terms of the energy level and excitement that you have for your career. You might be settling into a family right now. There might be a lot of different factors you have to consider in this whole 
career break opportunity, I'll call it a sabbatical. Well, speaking from my own experience, what felt right in terms of timing was I did have some experience in the working world and I had enough experience to start to realize what I didn't want. And this was something that it took me a while to formulate. This is actually something my grandma always said to me. She was like, you might not always know what you do want, but by trying different things, it'll at least teach you what you don't want. So I felt like I needed enough time in the you know full-time kind of corporate space to try a couple of different jobs. I had, I think, three or four full-time employers in that time since graduation and when I decided to do my sabbatical where I got to explore a little bit, who am I as an employee? What do I value in an employer, in a manager, in the way that I make money? And I had enough knowledge there to to have a couple of stepping stones when I got back. Because as someone who is a planner and who is kind of achievement oriented, I knew that I wasn't just going to wing it. I wasn't going to graduate college, go travel the world for a year or two, be completely broke when I got back and then figure it out. The idea of that makes me want to panic. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> Some people can do that. And like... Those people are crazy. I, I admire them, but not me. <laughs> exactly. Like there were people that did that this year. I was like, wow. And they're like, yeah, I'll just figure it out when I get home. So that's not me. For me, it was important to have enough time to, first of all, build experience because I knew coming back, if I was going to apply to places, I know that places want, you know, three to five years of experience on a resume. I knew that I wanted enough of a financial runway to be able to come back and live for a few months and not have the pressure of getting a full-time job. And I also knew that I had worked enough in my adult life to have at least a couple of directions that I could go into and not just have to take the next job that was going to pay me. So for me, it was more about like, what are my career options coming back? And then also the very real thing that I'm 28 now, I don't have kids. I'm not married. However, those are things that I want and I, I value. And I know that will become a bigger part of my life heading into my 30s. So for me, that sweet spot was really like mid to late 20s when I had enough experience to be able to come back and get a job quickly. But I also didn't have too much experience to where I was like pigeonholed into one thing. And it felt like a very good time for me to explore be able to pivot if I wanted to without the full-time responsibility of supporting a family. Hi there, podcast listeners. This is Kyle with the Struggles Real Team. You know, the better looking of the Peters boys. One big, big favor to ask. Please take a moment and give us a five-star review. Justin is an incredible host and he's bringing so much value to the self-development space. We want to help young professionals figure out this whole adulting thing. And by leaving us a rating, you can help us do it. Thank you. You're the reason that we continue to do what we do. Now, back to the show. So let's take a, a hard left now in the conversation. It is hard to avoid the conversation around Roth whenever you are talking to the founder of yes. Ready to Roth. <laughs> yes. So I want to spend I want to spend the last 10 minutes or so here exploring Roth IRAs, why you love them so much. So why don't you tell me? Why do you love Roth IRAs Rip. so much that you gave it as a Christmas gift? Like that, that is next level love for Roth IRAs. Oh my gosh. I, I don't even know where to start because <laughs> I just think if there was magic in money, the magic is in the Roth IRA. That's how it feels to me. I'm so excited about it. I named my company after it. 
what people need to know about Roth IRAs, especially young people starting out who maybe aren't in the highest earning potential that they'll ever have in their lives. What they need to know is that this is a way to build wealth and generational wealth that becomes tax-free when you really want it and you need it later in life. So I found out about this because COVID happened. I started reading about personal finance and I discovered, first of all, that investing was a really good thing to do if you wanted to <laughs> build wealth yeah, for because the future. Y- you mentioned, uh, you were kind of alluding to it earlier as well. You were really good at hoarding money, exactly. but not necessarily doing anything with the money that you were hoarding. So you kind of changed your mentality from saver to investor at this point in time. Exactly. So I discovered that entire arena and I realized that there's so many ways that people invest and they can invest and there's different types of accounts and investments and all of this thing. But coming from my background, I learned about the Roth IRA and what I learned that was First of all, it was particularly made for a certain group of people that I would classify as middle income, lower to middle income Americans, because there's actually a salary cap. If you make too much money, you don't qualify for this account. So right away, I was like, okay, that's like, that's, that's for me. That's for like the underdog person that wants to get into investing and start building wealth. So I was like, okay, cool. Let me find out more about it. And what I realized that was the government essentially created this account where they're going to get their money first. So the money that you put into the account is already taxed. And what that means is that you can put it into that account and it can grow over time. And when you need it later in life, in your 60s, for example, and you pull it out, it's completely tax-free. And I'm the type of person that if I'm running sprints, for example, in soccer, I'm always going to do the longest sprint first. Like I want to just get it done, rip off the Band-Aid. Exactly. Let me take the hit now so I don't have to worry about it in the future. So that felt like really good to me. So I can just put this money in and I don't have to worry about anyone taking their cut later in life. And then from there, I started to realize that there's some really cool aspects to this account that other investment vehicles don't have. So for example, we already know that the government gets their cut before you even put the money in. So what that means is that you can use an investment account like a Roth IRA And at any point, if you need the money that you physically contributed, you can pull that out. You don't have to ask permission. You don't get penalties or taxed on it. Essentially, you already paid taxes on that money. So your contributions can be pulled out at any time. And I like to tell people in that way, if you're nervous about investing or you don't want to lock your money up in an account, this investment can actually be used as an emergency fund if you absolutely have to. That's not to say that I recommend that because the more money in the account, the more it'll be worth later in life. So don't pull it out if you don't have to. And it's growing tax-free as well. So you pull it out, you don't get to go back to 2018 and make that same deposit because there are contribution limits on it as well. I mean, as of 2022, you can only contribute up to 6,000. And if you take that 6,000 out a couple years from now, you don't get to go back and put that money back into it. Exactly. So there is like compounding snowball effect type stuff that you need to be aware of. But it does give people kind of that out mentally who might be afraid to take the leap and start investing. Because if the economy crashes, if you can't pay your rent this month and you've already put, say, five grand into into this account of your own money, you could always dip into that and use it for emergency expenses. There are some other items that are called qualifying withdrawals as well. So let's say in a normal sort of long-term retirement account, you probably heard of people dipping into their 401ks when they need to 
and getting a pretty big penalty for that. What happens with the Roth is there's actually some exceptions to where you can dip into that money and not receive a penalty. And those are exceptions like education expenses. So you decide you need to go back to school later in life, you can use that money. Uh, medical expenses, adoption fees, um, you know, child rearing fees, and then also first time home buyer. So it gives people a lot of flexibility in how they might need to use that money for very real day-to-day things while also giving them this huge opportunity to invest for the long term and have tax-free growth. And Justin, I want to go back to what you said originally. What was the deal with the Christmas, right? Why are you so excited about it? (laughs) So my partner is the oldest of five. So she's got younger siblings. I have a sister and a brother. And what I, I did, so first of all, I learned about this account and I went full out nerd status. Like <laughs> I wanted to know everything about it. I did calculators. I wanted to just see what are all the options, right? And I got so excited about it that for Christmas a couple of years ago, I decided that I was going to make my siblings and my girlfriend's siblings listen to me talk about Roth IRAs for an hour. Oh, geez. Please tell me you made a PowerPoint. Oh, oh, of course. <laughs> oh, yeah. Christmas themed. It was like ready to oh, rock. It. It's actually how I came up with the company name. That's um, hilarious. It, it was like completely off the cuff. I had memes in there. So the title, the title of your presentation was ready to Roth. And you're, you're like, I love that so much. Yeah, exactly. Oh, fun. That's what it was. That. I probably still have it. I can send it to you. Yeah, you should, you should drop some of the links out on social at some point in time. Just like a couple like, like of the unedited, slides. Like, yes. <laughs> That'd be funny. Yeah, so... I put together this whole PowerPoint because I was like, oh my gosh, if they start to do this, so she has a brother who's about to turn 18, siblings that kind of range in their early 20s all the way up to us, 28. I realized very quickly that if young people actually took full advantage of this account, they would be millionaires without having to do that much by the time they retire. And for me, honestly, it felt like magic because I think about my parents who are nearing their 60s, retirement age, et cetera, who are just they don't have that sort of financial nest egg to fall back on. And I know that they didn't get this information when they were our age. So for me, I was like, okay, they have to take advantage of this. So I sat them down, put together a PowerPoint, walked them through all the steps. And at the end, I actually bought each person a copy of Ramit Seti's I Will Teach You to Be Rich. And I put 50 bucks in it and I handed it to each of them. And I was like, all right, you're going to open this account right now you're going to invest this $50. And I gave them like bonus points if they set up automatic investing and like gave them Chipotle (laughs) gift cards. And like, I went all out on it. But what we did was we did a Roth IRA calculator where I had them all calculate if I just never touch this $50 and I invest it and I assume, let's say an 8% return, how much will that turn into by the time I'm 65? And for her youngest sibling, who I think even at the time, he would have been like 16, if he had never touched that 50 bucks, it would have turned into like over 60 grand by the time he was 65. That's insane. And all he had to do was listen to me speak for an hour on Roth IRAs and he got to heckle me. So like, come on. You and I both have a love for this account. You and I both have a love for just investing for your future because you get to do amazing things like what you just did. There's no way you could have taken six months off of your career if You didn't make some of those prudent decisions over the last decade of your life to save some money, to invest some money so that you felt like you were in a place where you could 
take off time from your career that you could reevaluate and you could go enjoy something that you really want to enjoy versus being on that hike and worrying about, I'm going to have to find a job right when I get back. I'm going to like, what am I going to do? Or running your tail off a month ahead of time, working all of these hours to save up some money so that you could deploy that money on your hike itself. You felt, at least from a financial standpoint, very calm and ready for this hike. And, and like I said, I think that's a hat tip to you because you've done so much work over the last decade. And you know, you're going to magnify that work and continue to do some of that work so you can continue to enjoy moments like this later on in life. Exactly. I would say to folks too, something that really helped me going into the hike was having the sort of baseline personal finance knowledge and foundation that I started to build. Like you said, Justin, where not only did I have the immediate funds to pay for it and to know that I had some wiggle room when I got back, but because of the investing and kind of long-term knowledge I gained from honestly conversations with you, from you know, reading about this online and in lots of different avenues, I realized that, you know, I maxed out my Roth IRA this year before going on the hike. I made sure I had enough saved that if I didn't get a job, even into early next year, 2023, that I could still max it out, have enough savings to max it out next year. And I just knew that I was still investing for the long term, which gave me that relief to like take a break like this now and still have the peace of mind that I would be okay in the future. I dig you, Krista. You're such a good person. I'm really excited about everything that is in store for you in the future. I love this balance between living in the moment, but also making sure you take care of your future self in so many different aspects, not just money, but money especially too. Krista, let's end this conversation. I think you know my final question here. So I'll give it to you, give you a, a couple of seconds to, to give some thought to it because I know you're, <laughs> right. like, you're not exactly sure how you wanted to approach this answer. You didn't want the cop out of, of personal finance, but feel free to take it because I know you have a passion for it and you'd love to teach more about it. But if you had the opportunity to teach a 16-week class to a group of graduating college seniors on a topic that isn't normally covered in the classroom, what would you teach and how would you teach it? All right, this is kind of off the cuff, but it just hit me. I think the title of my course would be How to Build a Life. The way that I would structure that is I would really focus in on having people explore what makes them tick throughout the day, whether it's relationships, whether it's hobbies, whether it's passions. And I would really focus on getting students comfortable with what they do like to do and what they don't like to do just in terms of life. And we would have essentially a build your perfect day type workshop. We would do that every single day for 16 weeks until students started to see what themes resonated with them. And then they could take those themes and then apply them to the real world of making money, mm. building relationships, all of the things that we have to do, paying taxes, right? All of those things we have to do, but they would at least have some themes that they know that they really worked on and that were coming from them and not coming from the world telling them what they should do. Way to bring the, the whole theme of the conversation home with that answer. <laughs> That's it. You're trying to build a life here, right? <laughs> there it is. There it is. Krista Edwards, you can check her out, readytoroth.com, readytoroth on all the social media platforms. Krista Edwards, what a what a pleasure. I always enjoy talking it's to so you. so much I'm fun being here. Yes. I'm so glad you finally made an official appearance on The Struggle is Real. Hey, me again. Thanks for tuning in. To hear more Open Jam, hit subscribe. 
And if you like newsletters about money, random life topics, and music, head over to readytorock.com to subscribe to the Monthly Jam newsletter. Until next time.